And I think that sometimes we can latch onto things like Bitcoin thinking that Bitcoin is going to fix everything. Bitcoin is going to make my life a hell of a lot better. Oh my God, look at the future of Bitcoin. And I think the reality is that happiness is not external. I know our fiat world makes it feel like happiness is external. I just need the newest pair of shoes, the newest car or the house. Mm. But the reality is that happiness is very much, it's fleeting and it is very much an internal state. You have to love yourself and work on yourself. And if you're not doing the internal work, it doesn't matter how much money your Bitcoin is worth, you're still not going to be happy. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Howdy, plebs, and welcome back into the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. We have the band back together for this week. Daz B joins us from Australia. And Seb Bunny hops in from British Columbia for a four-way romp along Josh and myself, Dan. These blokes have been on the show well over 10 times each, the bulk of which was for our 10-part Bitcoin Basics series. That entire series is linked down in the show notes in case you missed it or want to double back. This hour was an open-ended romp, and we hope you find it as amusing and entertaining as we did. The four of us cover themes such as when should you leave your job or change careers, avoiding dogmatic and all-in mentalities, why real estate is a complete shit show for average wage earners who don't already own a home, Bitcoin ETFs eating up supply at a torrid pace, and why girth can be far more important than length. We would like to ask you a question. Do you own Bitcoin or do you own a Bitcoin IOU? If you don't hold your own private keys or you don't know what a private key is, you own a Bitcoin IOU, meaning you are subject to counterparty risk. When it comes to protection of our Bitcoin private keys, we choose to rely on the cold card. And there's a damn good reason why this specific device has stood the test of time and is favored by so many in Bitcoin. It simply works. It's dependable, incredibly secure, and user-friendly. It also allows for growth and optionality if your technical skills or interests expand. You can use code BCB, that's BCB, for a special discount on cold card, or check out the cold card link we have down in the notes for discounts on a variety of their products, including the block clocks. Lastly, before we dive in, the Bitcoin Asia Conference is coming up May 9th and 10th in Hong Kong, and the mother of all Bitcoin conferences, Bitcoin 2024, goes down July 25th to the 27th in Nashville, Tennessee. You can also use code BCB for a succulent discount on them apples, so shit or get off the pot as they say. Sit back, relax, and enjoy a romp with our boys from Looking Glass Education, Daz and Seb. We're here, the band is back together. Daz and Seb in studio, we did our shit talking that can't go on the air before clicking mm. record. And now we're here for the formalities. Sorry, audience. But yeah, we talked some good shit. It was therapeutic, I thought. I'm kind of shocked that Seb showed up for the show after being on Peter's show. Like, I thought it was kind of a toss up if he would actually show up here, but good on his word. He did. You know, he's, he's still not too big for his britches over there in the Canadian North. So thanks for showing up, Seb. Bros before, I'm not going to finish that sentence, but I'm, I'm here for you guys. <laughs> You're a hoe, Peter. That's what he just said. You're a hoe. Heard it here first. <laughs> not, not at all. I, I massively appreciate the opportunity, and so, but I love these conversations. Sub was saying that Peter flew him coach on Spirit, and that's why he, that's why he had like four missed flights, canceled flight, and like delays. Peter, you're really going to have to splurge a little bit more than that on these guests, man. That's it's not. If we're going to fly people out, it's first class, United or American only, right? Then, or maybe yeah. Qatar Airlines even. 
That's why we don't fly. We could have easily afford to fly people yeah, out, wine them sure. and dine them, Josh, but we don't just because we're not quite able to do first class yet. But once we can, yeah, we'll, we'll do nothing less than that. No spirit, no frontier. Sounded like a good experience, Seb. Huh? You, you did great in the episode as always. And what an important message you have. I Just a quick anecdote. I know you were on here a few weeks ago, but how's the uh, book continued to do and how are your spirits and feelings with uh, a lot of momentum on this thing? It honestly it has been such an incredible journey. I I did not expect the response that I got. Like it's one of those things that's it's kind of nerve wracking putting your thoughts out there. As you guys know, having a podcast, like when you share what it is that you're thinking, and then you get pushed back on it, and then you get people kind of resonating with it. It's it's a really really humbling experience. But I've just been blown yeah, away. You're vulnerable when you do that, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Very. and especially when you open the book up about your childhood experiences and your parent parental relationship and stuff. So. I've, I've, I've been blown away. And so I really appreciate this, the community. This has been such a cool experience. It's awesome. Daz, what's up with you, dude? I just want to hear a quick, quick Daz and Daz update out there. I'm just riding the coattails of one said bunny, man. I'm just along for the <laughs> ride. I just, I know who to hitch my, uh, you know, hitch my star to. So yeah, no, um, going good over here. Fit, fit world ramping up, but, um, still busy at the grind. Looking forward to, we, uh, Seb and I are very lucky to be able to go to Madeira next week. So we're super looking forward Beautiful. to that. That's awesome. Wait, what are you working on in your fiat job? Just quick, quick update. We, uh, we talk Bitcoin all the time. And what, what, what project are you in the middle of? So I do standalone power systems. So where we've got really long lines of what we call SWIR network, single wire earth return, poles and wires that go out to the middle of Queensland. Um, so kilometers and kilometers serving one small load, like a cattle station or communication site, communications towers, we're pulling those poles and wires out. We're putting solar batteries and diesel generators in. Uh, and it's a bit of a project to see if it's uh, worthwhile doing in lieu of poles and wires because traditionally, as like these technologies evolve and they get a little bit cheaper, then we're just looking at, does it make sense to be going in repairing these poles and wires every four years or should we been a bit more upfront, plant something down, and that's a full self-sustaining little microgrid for these customers. Very cool. That's pretty interesting. Do, do you like your job, Des? Like as job. you zoom out and think about your life, how do, how do you feel about your main job and career at this stage? That's a very therapist question. That's very pointed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. How does it make me feel? No, I love my job. Um, what I wish is that I could opt in a little bit more in and around the time so as things evolve and like because bitcoin and everything we do at looking glass and everything tends to take a, a little bit more time so it's finding a balance between that i can do a lot after hours because you know like this is before work right now right so i can time my day in and around that fiat life but ideally it'd be a balance moving forward where i could roll back from the fiat life a little bit more and lean a little bit more into the energy side of what we what what bitcoin can mean for energy grids but um, it's a it's a balance, and I think while I love my job, if I could do Bitcoin and energy together, that's the that's the that's niche, the right? So that's the dream. One day. That's the dream fit. Yeah, for sure. I think this next cycle, you know, this is what I love about Bitcoin more than anything. I think Bitcoin buys people opportunity, and this ties in with a lot of the messaging around Seb, uh, Seb's book, and that and the messages around what money does, and for me buys me optionality it buys me the ability to point my efforts and my energy towards something that i love you know mm. and, and 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 i think that's what you do you you hustle now you put it aside you put it in a savings vehicle that by fundamental rights is pretty easy to understand and you park it for the longer term 
And then you can come back and revisit and say, okay, now my net worth has appreciated. Now I'm able to afford myself some, to point my energies towards other things that I love, you know, and that things that resonate with me. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing about what, why we're all here. And I think we all share on that mission for wage earners in particular, you blue collar boys, you know, blue collar Bitcoin listeners is this will give you optionality. You don't have to necessarily, re- I will never retire. That's never what it's about. I'm, I enjoy the hustle too much, but it just allows me to focus those energies on what's resonating with me, you know, and that's yeah. that's really why I'm here. Yeah, exactly. You can point your energy at something that really gives you some passion to be chasing, not sitting in some cubicle, staring at a gray wall and hating your life, you know, like everyone's got some kind of passion or work that they do enjoy or hobbies or something, but this is something that gives you optionality into the future, hopefully the sooner than later, but uh, you don't have to continue a job that you absolutely despise exactly just not something anyone should have to do you know and it gives people hope if, if even if you're in that job now that you don't necessarily love but you know if you just hustle and grind and you can put away that excess for the longer term that optionality is coming and that's where we we you know it's a bit of a meme but we say bitcoin is hope and that's absolutely what it is it's like i have to hustle now but there's light at the end of the tunnel in the fiat system you're still on that on that grind, on that hustle, but there's not that light at the end of the tunnel saying there's optionality at the end if you just stick stay the course right now. And and that's really, you know, a pretty profound statement that it's easy to say, harder to get. And I think that's mm. where most people the light hits. And this is why we're always advocating for only put if if you're new here, only put in what you can absolutely afford to ride out for four years and then come back. And it's after that four year cycle if you've only been sort of dipping your toe in that you come to the realization that holy shit mm. how much is my purchasing and what options are available to me now and what would have happened had i just abstained from you know spending in excess you know i don't need the five netflix streaming services subscriptions one might do you know and you start um really coming back to these fundamental basics around saving and and um you know and and that optionality that it then buys you makes you have this epiphany of like, wow, if I only hustled a little bit harder, right? And this is where I think this, it, it again, it ties into all that stuff that Seb was talking about in this book around how money then infiltrates all of these things downstream of how we come up and how we show up in the world and how we navigate society from consumerism and, and you know, the environment and all of these things are all tied in downstream effects of money. And when you aren't incentivized to save, you're incentivized yeah. to enjoy the moment, so you're incentivized to increase consumption because you need to say, you need to say, my hustle is worth something. Oh, I've bought this pretty shiny new thing to hang on the mantelpiece, you know, and that's where you're finding your your value. But if you're able to actually direct that into something that actually buys you optionality over the longer term, then it shifts your whole focus on how you show up and how you navigate the world and what we see value in. I think the hard thing to assess, right? There's probably people listening to this pod that are dissatisfied with their job, have dream jobs. Some of the more hardcore Bitcoiners may want to go work in Bitcoin and have those aspirations. I think there's something healthy about hearing you just say a couple minutes ago, I like my job. It's not perfect. I have future goals and aspirations, but my job's okay. And I I don't have an answer here, but it's hard to assess in life and in your career trajectory. What is a phase And what is a legit consideration to switch? So for me, 
I got out of college. I went to PGA management school and I managed a golf course and taught golf lessons. And about five years into doing that, my wife and I went through like basically a full year where I was trying to figure out, am I just in the first trough of a really good career or is this career not the best fit for me? And that is not an easy answer. And that takes time to marinate. And I guess I would encourage people, let it marinate and don't hastily quit something that keeps the lights on and allows you to save money, right? If you're cash flow positive and you have a decent job, take some time, consult some people in your life that have some wisdom and try to be really balanced and objective. Cause man, there's so many people in our generation and generations below that just have the attention span of a gnat when it comes to their vocation. And they're just fucking hopping all over the place. And if we're just talking nuts and bolts, X's and O's, that has huge financial consequences. There are rewards to sticking with a viable career, matching your expenditures to it, and buying scarce assets. Dan, you and I were on the ambulance together like, I don't know, about a month ago. And we had this conversation about how much money would you have to have banked Mm. right now to just flat out quit today? Like you get that 2 a.m. ambulance call where some old lady shit all over herself and you have to pick her up. She weighs 300 pounds. And you're like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm done. I'm leaving right now. And we, we, we went back and forth for like half an hour about this. And I think what I came to the conclusion of was, I'm not sure I would because there's so much, there's so much social activity that goes on at, in and out the firehouse. And I'm, Daz, I'm sure you've got guys you work with that you like. You, they're like brothers to you. You hang out. At the firehouse, it's very similar, maybe even more so. It's your social life interconnected there. There's so much of your identity that you would be ripping off of yourself and discarding. And I don't think it would be healthy for most people to just, especially if you don't have something bigger to do, something bigger than yourself. Yeah. If you don't have like a God or something larger than yourself that you recognize as the passion to pursue and you just decide I'm going to, it reminds me of office space when he's like, what would you do if you had a million dollars? He's like, nothing. I would do nothing at all. Like if you're that guy, you're probably not going to make it past five years because it's going to be like a heroin overdose or you're going to probably kill yourself because you realize you're living an empty life. Yep. (laughs) For sure. A little dark at the end there. Dude, I mean, the numbers we were coming up with, Josh, they were outrageously high. Yeah. Like, I mean, and yeah, the grass ain't always greener. We, we, We were also saying it takes me like three or four days in an all-inclusive resort to say, man, this has been a great trip, but I couldn't do this for more than a week or two without going crazy. Right. How long can you look at fat people in in bikinis, you know? (laughs) A while. (laughs) A while. I can have fun uh, sipping sipping cocktails next to my wife, making fun of fat people for quite some time. But yeah, even that would run out. It gets old eventually, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, that was a great first 12 minutes here. I think our thought was we're just going to go around. This is a popcorn rip session. And boy, am I excited. We're just going to go around dude to dude, throw out a topic. The four of us will rip on it, riff on it for a few minutes, and then we'll go to the next guy. Uh, Daz or Seb, kick us off with a topic, Bitcoin or not, and we'll go from there. Sweet. I'll give it a go. So I was on a pod uh, it was a new pod. I think it may have even been his first episode. And the guy mentioned just a little anecdote that I thought was just fascinating. Now, I have not heard the anecdote directly, and I think it is from Terdemista. So I could be, I want to make sure that I'm not just kind of like taking credit for this. But it was this idea that if you're like a high performing, let's say Olympian athlete, 
but all you're eating is freaking McDonald's, how can you ever expect to perform at like your maximum or really kind of like reach your full potential? And the reality is that that is the world at which we're living in. The food at which we're consuming is our money and our money is just absolute garbage. And so we're not really maximizing our potential of society. We have a money that is losing value over time. It's causing cost of living to rise. It's incentivizing people to go and take risk. It's incentivizing people to flood into assets. It's incentivizing people to constantly try and have to work more just to be able to get ahead. And so it's altering how we are showing up in the world. And like to give one quick example would be like money is meant to serve like three functions, a store of value, a medium of exchange, a unit of account. Let's just focus on that store of value for a second. If money does not act as a store of value, then people are going to seek value that storage elsewhere. So what do they do? They go and pile into equities, they go pile into real estate, they go pile into bonds. So we see house prices absolutely skyrocket and everyone's like, sweet, a house is going up. It's like, no, your house isn't going up. The currency is going down. That is what's really happening. And so ultimately it makes property completely out of reach for the average person. And mm-hmm. I think like in my book, I touched on it very quickly, which is something like the baby boomer generation at 30 years old owns something like 35% of the housing market. The millennial generation at 30 years old owns 3% of the housing market. It's because wow. like assets wait, are just- Wait, where, where'd you hear, if you don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you, where did you hear that again? This is, this is, a, there's a, what is it? In the book, I cite it, but I think it's a New York Times or a Wall Street article. Uh, I can back that up. It's, it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Is that, that's very recent data too. Like, yeah. that, that is an incredible wow. comment. Yeah. But I think what it's showing is that our money is not fulfilling its purpose. It is not a store of value. So it's incentivizing all this alternate behavior where people are simply trying to hedge against debasement. It's forcing them into paths at which they may not necessarily take. And not only that, because they're being forced into these paths of funneling capital into assets, they're becoming unachievable to most people. And so the average person is they're struggling with rent. They're no longer able to buy a house to support their family. So it's kind of altering how we're showing up in the world. And so anyway, going back to kind of my initial point is if you're an athlete and all you're eating is McDonald's, how can we ever reach our full potential? And this is kind of the world we're living in. We've got this world where we have some incredible minds that are able to help progress humanity, whether it's through science, whether it's through technology. But all of this is being captured by a broken monetary system, which is just sucking away all of our potential to be able to create, to collaborate, to actually add value to society. And I, I think it's interesting. We don't really think too much about how money really is this kind of this energy that can shape who we are. It alters how we show up in the world. So I thought we'd kind of riff on that with a bunch of few different ideas. You mentioned with Peter that I think you said in Whistler, 60% of the real estate is empty or just dormant because those are used as investment properties. That is such an insane number. And I, I really do wonder on the greater on the scale of like the US in general, how much of how many properties are being used that are just totally vacant, that are completely being used for investment properties. Um, I wish I would have looked that up before this because that would have been more interesting. But um, it's wild that we're just building these empty properties simply to store value because our money is so, so broken. Like the Australian market too. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have any stats to back them up, but we we treat property like a pristine store of value here. It's 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 actually really problematic in, in the major cities like you're living in studio apartments that are selling for multiples of millions of dollars and how, how can you be a retail worker and not expect to travel two hours either side of your day just to work in the, in in these cities and our whole monetary policy our whole 
government policy is built around boosting this construction uh, industry because we've really only got mining and construction. They're the two things. So what we're starting to see now is they've opened the floodgates for immigration as well because they're trying to introduce more demand to try and keep this property uh, market boosted and try and keep the construction market boosted. And so it's artificially, again, government intervention pulling on the levers of of controls to try and keep the underlying because a lot of our retirement accounts, a lot of our investment, um, you know, from our boomers who inherited, you know, 40 years of declining interest rates, it's so highly levered to the real estate market that they can not, absolutely cannot allow that to pop. What we're starting to see is a lot of mortgage stress. So I think the latest figures I saw was something like, 60% of Australians are under mortgage stress at the moment. So to think that real estate over a longer term is a safe place for you to park your mm. your wealth, it's so risky at the moment. Like, you know, what we say is in these high inflationary environments is that hard assets will do well. But the trick is how do you find a hard asset and not get levered, you know, multiples right. upon, upon your wage? And that's where I think real estate in particular in Australia and I think globally is really at risk of this paradigm between it always being a safe investment, it's like, hang on, we got high inflation, we got interest rates that are creeping up towards that inflation, and it's still largely sustained. Yes, inflation's come down a little bit, but the real interest rates are still lagging behind that inflation rate, but they're higher, and it's putting more pressure on the on the, these mortgage stress levels, and at any moment, that, that, that bubble can pop, and we see corrections in the real estate market, People getting washed out. They're highly levered. They're going to get margin called on those on those loans. It's a really, really dangerous um, on the precipice of this potential cascade in in the downfall of real estate, which would completely decimate the middle class because people use real estate because they can understand it. Like typically, you know, in Australia, we had decades worth of double. Um, you, you could basically for ten years up until before two thousand eight, you could guarantee your property price was going to double over a 10-year period. People get that. They can understand that. They can grok that. They can't go, you know, if they're looking for alternative investments, they don't get how to value equities. They don't get how to do rebalance sheets and statements and cash flow statements and, um, you know, debt-to-equity ratios. What does that even mean, you know, and discount cash flow analysis. How do they navigate that? But they understand real estate. So that's where most of our money is getting funneled into real estate as a pseudo store of value where money should serve that purpose and this is really back to that argument around why we bitcoin is because it's it's for it's for fucking dumb people like me like a sparky shouldn't know how to do discount cash flow analysis it just should <laughs> and i should <laughs> I, I should just be able to park my money and come back at a later date and and it increase in purchasing power I, I find it fascinating that and you touched on it very briefly which is the speculation aspect Bitcoin always gets the argument, well, Bitcoin is just a speculative asset. And the reality is that I think, yes, at some point, real estate has not been super speculative because if you had bought a long-term rental property, you can cover all your expenses and generate cash flow from long-term rentals. And then over time, that switched where you couldn't really do it on long-term rentals. You could only do it on nightly rentals. And then no longer can you do it on nightly rentals. Now, if you want to make money on property, the only way you're going to make money on property is bet that it's going to appreciate in value. And so property is now the most speculative of, of all assets. Like, mm. at least when you're looking at Bitcoin, Bitcoin has immense utility value. Uh, you, you're able to transact P2P. You've got a trustless, permissionless currency. You're able to move money cross borders without intermediaries. Like, unbelievable utility value. And when it comes to property these days, people are simply trying to store 
wealth and they're betting that the property price is going to go up. Yeah. Hey, I've got a question about mortgages in Australia or in Canada because obviously we're not, we're not there. Peter McCormick has talked a lot about how his mortgage in the UK is not like a 30-year fix the way you, like most people in the US get a 30-year fixed. Is that a possibility in Australia or is, how does it work there? Five-year fixed. Five-year fixed and then it's floating? Wow. Oh, so that's very interesting. That, that just applies pressure so much quicker. Like you guys are basically in a pressure cooker right now as this thing, you know, say you have like a 2% from a couple of years ago. Most people don't opt in for fixed either because they've engineered those fixed rates over the time to make it way more attractive to maintain a variable. So um, even five years is a bit of an anomaly. The typical fixed term period would be three, five at a, at a sort of max. I'd, I, I saw this coming. I took a five year. I've got, still got a mortgage. I took a five-year fixed, and I've got maybe three and a half years left to go, and I locked it in at 2.6%. I'm one of the lucky ones because I sort of saw inflation and going, interest rates have to catch up. Even if right. I don't, I'm going to bet here, and my downfall is I go from 2.6 to zero. I miss out on that upside, but right. I don't know where the downside is you know, of that, of that bet. So I was lucky in that sense. But again, like in, in you know, three and a half years, I'm going to have to sit down and reassess and go, right, oh, now where's my... Where's my energy's best, you know, what's my opportunity cost for the money that I'm, I'm, I'm now saving? So it is a pressure cooker. You're absolutely right. And most people are already feeling that pain because they're already on that variable rate. But then as people do start rolling off these fixed, it's just going to keep, it's not going to get better anyway, put it that Interesting. way. I wish, I wish we could get 30 year fix. I would have locked that bad boy in. I can't impress how much different it is for us here. Such a cheat code. Like, and I mean, Josh and I sometimes feel bad. Because we're at an age and a and a spot where we both bought houses before things got squirrely and refied down to low rates, and we're locked in at thirty years. It's it's uh, it's interesting to hear how much different and how how much quicker rate dynamics are going to impact other populations. I didn't fully put that together. Yeah, I didn't think about that either. Think about shorting REITs, international REITs, dude. <laughs> we need to be shorting the hell out of those things right now. The thing that's interesting, though, from the banking perspective, though, of a 30-year mortgage, like if, if you are, let's just say, Dan, you take out a 30-year mortgage, like many times, the banks are borrowing on the short end and lending on the long end and capturing the spread between the two. And yeah. so the challenge they face is that if they're lending out for 30 years and all of a sudden rates spike, they're screwed. They can't actually right. capture any profit. So it creates a ton of like structural instability within the US banking system. And that's where, like to your point, Josh, that you mentioned, we, the moment our term expires, so like let's say you've got a three-year uh, term like Daz has, a, uh, well, five-year term at say 3%. Wait, so just to be clear, things are exactly the same in Canada. You can't get like They're a the same year. in New Zealand. They're the same in the UK. They're the same in Australia. They're the same in Canada. But pretty Dude, much- we are, we are such sloppy hogs in the US, man. I, I've never seen in any other country, a country that allows for like 30-year fixed terms. That's just mind-blowing. And the moment your term is up- I know. Then you can renew. And But the thing is that you risk, and this is what's happened here, is that- Let's take the pandemic, for instance. We saw house prices absolutely skyrocket into the pandemic because of all of that injection of capital. So we saw house prices, let's say, double. A house price has gone from 500 to a million. So all of a sudden, you've got this million-dollar house, and everyone is like, oh my God, am I going to be able to afford a house in a few years' time? I've got to get into the market right now. So what are they going to do? They go and put down 5% down on a property, so they've got 95% mortgage at 1 million. And then all of a sudden they lock into, let's say, a two or three year mortgage, or they can't even afford the fixed rate. So they go with the variable rate when interest rates are at two and a half percent. 
And all of a sudden, we then see the, the Fed or the central bank go and jack up rates. These people that have got 95% mortgage that have been squeezed to get into the property have now just seen their interest payments double or triple. And so this is yeah, where the yeah. economy is just on its knees right now because people are defaulting left, right, and center because they can't afford their interest payments because they bought in when house prices were rising, but interest rates were two and a half, three percent I was going to throw in a, a quick thought about your McDonald's analogy, a, a word of caution maybe to play the other side for a second, especially at a date and time right now where we just saw the S&P 500 hit all-time highs. Many people in this space said in this rate environment that Things were going to crash. People were taking short positions that were ill-advisable. People were exiting the market that never should have. My point is that, obviously, I've spent hours on here talking about how artificial the, the 2020s economy is, but it is still possible for an athlete to consume McDonald's and still be really good. If Patrick Mahomes eats an excess of McDonald's, I assure you he's still going to be an elite NFL quarterback. He's just that talented. So there, this maybe flies in the face of people that say value investing is completely dead, for example, but it is still possible for companies, sectors, and markets to increase in value and productivity, even in a, an excessive McDonald's environment where fiat's a little flimsy. And uh, yes, there, there's a lot of artificiality, but the entire thing isn't artificial. There's still a lot of people out there with new ideas, building new things, uh, rowing in proper directions. And I, I guess my takeaway or my thesis of that comment is be careful expecting that the sky is going to continue falling. Maybe it will this year or next year, but a lot of people in this space have looked pretty stupid and probably lost a lot of money expecting things to unwind much quicker than than they will. Peter Schiff, he's the perfect example of that. He's been calling this guy falling for 30 years, investing in gold, which, you know, did pretty well, you know, 15 years ago. But if you've been investing in gold for the last 10 to 15 years, like your returns are dog shit. Yeah, it's just the reality of it. I, I, I do agree. I do agree. The end. And this all comes back down to, again, I guess the understanding and education of the risk, the inherent risk, like in all of these things. And I think like most people underestimated the financial engineering that's possible. Like, you know, we were looking for that quote unquote quantitative easing branding again, but there was other ways that they can inject liquidity, not call it quantitative easing, but mm. it essentially still boils down to financial fuckery um, in the underlying and this then, it always ends up on the plebs. Always ends up on the, you know, it's not direct. It's not instantaneous. They don't just inject liquidity and we get inflation. It's this introducing of more monetary units, which absolutely has to, at some point, in some way, shape or form, show up in debasement. And if it shows up in asset prices normally first, and this is where, you know, as wage earners, we can't save in assets. We've got to save in dollars. So it keeps getting further and further away and our ability to obtain assets becomes harder and harder and harder. And then it's at what point does that no longer work? What point does that liquidity no longer work? And at what point do people does the overarching currency get lose space? And that's really the, the biggest risk in my mind is we've been wrong. I've I've been saying to people, don't invest in equities. Like it's too hard to navigate. But like Dan points out, S P just keeps pumping and pumping and pumping. So we, we've been wrong, but 
we're also been right in the respect that it is really fucking hard to navigate and really hard to know where your risk is. Now, people who benefit most from asset appreciation have a lot of resources to throw at keeping an eye on and a finger on the pulse. And this is where, at what point do you get out? I sure as shit know that they're going to know when to get out before you do. <laughs> yes, well, well said. Just watch well what Nancy Pelosi said. does. When Nancy yeah. Pelosi sells her portfolio, it's time to it's time to walk, boys. <laughs> Isn't there a Twitter account that watches her portfolio or her buys so, and sells? Yeah. It's yeah, and and that's the danger, man. Like honestly, it's like you know, I March twenty twenty, I pulled everything I owned out into cash because this world lockdown. I'm like, it cannot function from here. It cannot. I just want to sit in cash until I know where I'm going to go. Discovered Bitcoin. Went okay. I'm going to park a good portion of that in into bitcoin because i saw it as a hard asset without counterparty risk and that's really what it boiled down to and i didn't want to get in over levered positions with real estate I, I knew the thesis around investing in a hard asset took a bit of gold took a bit of silver took a bit of bitcoin and like i need to see how this thing plays out and then they just started the money printer up and i i didn't get back into that um you know the the asx 200 and the s p 500 those indexes through my retirement accounts and I watched them go, 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 go. But I knew it was artificially pumped and I knew that it's an unsustainable path moving forward and just keep retesting that hypothesis around what's going to best serve me and what do I understand and what am I going to be able to keep my finger on the pulse with in order to know if I indeed need to pull out. That's a really important point and I think something that people should take into consideration. Like, I consider myself, I, I mean, I pay attention to Bitcoin like a hawk. Like I think we all do. The four of us pay attention to this more than any other investment vehicle we own, probably. For everything else, for me, it's index funds because I don't have the bandwidth to be, you know, looking at four Qs for X, Y, and Z company and picking individual stocks. Like this is just a very simple play for me. Own a lot, own as much Bitcoin as I feel comfortable owning, and then ride the SP and a couple other index funds. It's that simple. It really is. This is not financial advice. <laughs> well, and I think to give a little bit of clarity around there, it is that, and I really appreciate your point, Dan, and that's where when I look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin, to me, I'm looking at it philosophically in the bigger picture. I'm not just like, how can I look at this world through the lens of fear and how do I just get ahead? And that's not what we're referring to. We're not talking about just going put all your money in Bitcoin and hope that it goes up in value. What we're looking for is like, how do we actually create a better world that realigns the incentives so that we're actually working together and actually collaborating and adding value? And I think that the problem with our fiat world right now, to the analogy of kind of the McDonald's, is that because costs are constantly rising, and let's just say costs rise by 10% a year, either I have to increase the amount of working by 10% a year or beg for a pay rise of 10% a year just to be able to maintain my same standards of living. So constantly we're being... Our time is being extracted from us. It's getting harder and harder and harder. And that's where I think if we were in, say, a Bitcoinized world, it flips everything on its head. When you've got a society that is adding value, when you've got a society that technology is advancing, productivity is increasing, but then you have a fixed pie of capital, all of a sudden, our purchasing power increases. And that's where I think life gets easier as opposed to harder because prices fall as opposed to prices rise. And so I think it's just, I'm thinking more bigger picture. As opposed to saying, okay, we're in the fiat world. How do I get out of my situation right now? Go invest 100% in Bitcoin. That's not what I'm saying. It's more like, how do we create a world that actually realigns the incentives? How do we create a world that allows us to fuel human productivity and value creation? 
And the only way to bring that about is for people to choose to opt out, yep. educate themselves and opt out with a portion. You mm. know, it only takes a portion of people's net wealth into Bitcoin to really make a change. And I think this is where um, circles back on this argument about how we then show up, right? And it comes back to like that Mas- Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that self-actualization. Once you've feathered your, your nest, you've built up a nice foundation for yourself and you gain opportunity through through your purchasing power then you can point your energies towards very altruistic things and we as humans are altruistic beings and this is where i think the argument gets lost with having to brand it like socialism or um capitalism and and all of those things that um you know the the arguments that then say they took they can't coexist where i absolutely think they can like we are altruistic people once we get that to that self-actualization we're going to give back and i think that's where we're going to choose to point our capital and our purchasing power and our energies towards bringing about this better world. And we're going to be able to do that through capital appreciation, not through the Cantillon effect, where the closer you are to the money spigot and the lobbyists and, and the, the better relationships you can make at the political and elite level, then you get access to the money first and then you shape the world how you want. Whereas we're going to be able to create that purchasing power through value. value. You know, you have to provide value to get value back. And then where, as I think, you know, this is this is why I love this community so much because I think we think and see the world very similarly. You can meet a Bitcoiner and within about five minutes already feel like your best friends because we see the world from the very same lens of you can't create value from nothing. You have to create value. And then in doing so, those ideals then begin to shape the world that we see around us and as our appreciation and our, our purchasing power appreciates we're then able to direct those energies and it, you can call it lobbying if you like and it will be a pseudo lobbying but we'll be wealthier have a lot more purchasing power and we'll be a lot more attuned to what it takes for the value creation of the expenditure of that money and use it for the betterment of society i believe yeah and my closer here on this topic is just cautioning against an all or nothing mentality to characterize the evolution of my worldview. It is me. And some people may call this flimsy and gray and limp, but really railing against dogmatism and all or nothing mentalities. We have recorded every single week, Josh, for almost three years. We've been studying Bitcoin. We're in our seventh year. I'm a firm believer in the value proposition to this protocol. For the entirety of that time period, every paycheck I get, I have bought diversified equity. And I continue to do that. And I own a lot of equity in my net worth. Um, And so the point I make there is maybe I'm a fiat cuck, but I'm a Bitcoiner and I still play the legacy system. And I caution whatever the Bitcoin community is or whatever it means against this all or nothing mindset. This sort of like hardcore, like, are you in or are you out, dude? Yeah. It's just not healthy. We talked last week some about religion, and I think I'll, I'll harp on it again because it's a big part of my background. The, the biggest complaint I had against evangelical Christianity growing up was it the entire incentive structure pushes people to an all or nothing mentality, towards excess certainty, towards in-out ideology towards biblical inerrancy, things that I think are all incredibly flimsy logically, 
Not that Christianity doesn't have anything to offer, but all or nothing dogmatic, fully certain Christianity is extremely hollow and I argue toxic. But it's the, the, I get why it proliferates because it's, it's the belief system trying to defend itself. Are you with us or are you against us? You know what I mean? Like you own fiat shit? Fuck you. You have a little bit of an Ethereum position? Fuck you. Whatever, the, the, whatever it is, people are looking to put up these fences. Let people do their thing. Right. Be, be care less about what others are doing. Focus more on your own agenda and let's become less of a cult and be more objective. In my opinion, get off that high horse. Dude, it's a hierarchy game, man. It's it, we we as humans, we just have this this tendency for hierarchies, no matter what, like Bitcoin. There's a hierarchy here. Uh, Christianity, there's a clear hierarchy there. Every single cult that's ever existed, there's a hierarchy and there's somebody telling you you know, how to cut your fingernails the right way and put on the purple shoes and cut your nuts off so that you're a eunuch. Like every single one of these things intro clip has a hierarchy that you follow these rules properly and you're going to get to nirvana or heaven or whatever it is, or you're going to be rich someday with Bitcoin. But it's all just these games we construct for ourselves as humans. There's no negative eventualities that come out of just doing your fiat job, buying some Bitcoin and not being a, a religious zealot about anything if you can help it. I was going to say, I can only speak for myself, but had I found Bitcoin in my 20s, single before marriage, I probably would have been balls deep, 100%. Let's go, let's ride this baby. But as you <laughs> get a bit older, there's people who depend on you, me being you know, the, the primary wage earner. There's always that thought in the back of your mind, what if you're fucking wrong? That's you're a dumb sparky. Again, it's like you shouldn't know how to do discount cash flow. So maybe you've overthought something here, right? So I'm not 100% Bitcoin, never have been, never will be. But what I've found is that my allocation will, um, f- as a percentage of my portfolio over time, as their net worth starts to appreciate, it's becoming a larger and larger piece of that pie. And I think that'll continue to, to, to mm-hmm. grow. Yeah. And then it comes to the point of, if I'm following all of the traditional investment rules, yeah, maybe I should take some off the table and diversify somewhat. But I sit there and I look around and I go, I don't know what else to fucking buy. I'm only going to want to sell Bitcoin and buy more Bitcoin at this point in time. But I don't want to ever leave my beautiful little children and my beautiful wife a problem. You know, if something happens to me tomorrow and they don't necessarily know how to or want to keep their finger on the pulse with this thing, like we've all agreed that we do, um, I, you know, or if I'm wrong and it did something comes out of the blue and this leap in quantum computing would have completely fucked the SHA-256 algorithm, leave my little family high and dry, that's just not how I manage risk. That's just not me. Um, and I, I 100% agree. It's like that dogmatic view of you have to be 100 percent on the bus, you're on the bus. I guarantee most of those are little fucking computer nerds sitting in their basements, living in their mum's basement, sitting on a big stack of Bitcoin without any real notion of what it takes to navigate and raise a family and you know provide for other humans and i i would and that's probably a blanket statement i'll probably get grilled and and you know throwing rotten tomatoes at but i i firmly believe that if there's other dependence on you you can't be that sure you absolutely cannot be that sure and i would just everyone's risk tolerance is different if you're 100 bitcoin and you know all this and you know all the trade-offs absolutely happy for you but that's, I don't think it's a creating a, uh, an environment where we're going to onboard another 7 billion people by being that dogmatic against people's optionality. And I think 
most people are on the same path for newcomers it's like you've got to dip it you can't go 100 percent in you will shit the bed when you have that 20 percent oh, draw yeah. down in two days you will shit the bed and you will sell everything mm-hmm. and you won't even vi- revisit it so the best way to go is to dip your toe in try the water out get comfy yeah okay maybe i might go up to my nipples you know the barstool guy is a perfect example of that what's his name uh, uh portnoy. Port- Dave portnoy. portnoy yeah he bought sold bought sold basically at the worst possible times and he's he's not i mean he's not a dummy he's done he's been very successful Davey, Davey but, day trader exactly but he you know he just doesn't have the he, number one he doesn't have the education and he doesn't have the ball sack obviously Chutzpah. so i mean that's i just love his honesty though i fucked myself on bitcoin fuck it's at fifty-two thousand. i fucked myself on bitcoin i'll link that tweet in the notes it's legendary <laughs> i think b- before moving on as well i just wanted to add one point which is like we are a product of our environment and i think that there are always going to be people whether you come from poverty that are able to rise above the environment to which you're in but the environment does shape us you know what i mean like if we're in a very hard environment it's very hard as daz mentioned like in the maslow's hierarchy of needs you've got to meet your basic survival needs your shelter needs to be able to actually live only then can you start to think about relationships only then can you start to think about enjoyment physical activity self-actualization and so this is where i think the environment to which we live in is a very hard environment. And I think that sometimes we can latch onto things like Bitcoin, thinking that Bitcoin is going to fix everything. Bitcoin is going to make my life a hell of a lot better. Oh my God, look at the future of Bitcoin. And I think the reality is that happiness is not external. I know our fiat world makes it feel like happiness is external. I just need the newest pair of shoes, the newest car or the house. Mm. But the reality is that happiness is fleeting. very much, it's fleeting and it is very much an internal state. You have to love yourself and work on yourself. And if you're not doing the internal work, it doesn't matter how much money your Bitcoin is worth, you're still not going to be happy. Yeah. To, to insert an example that Josh and I have been talking about too, our department's in the middle of lieutenant's testing. So people are participating in this lieutenant's test. I'm one of them. I'm involved. And my message to people taking it and to myself is, it's great to have goals. It's great to seek promotion if that's something you want in whatever line of work you're in. But I promise myself and anyone else taking the test that if you get what you want, you aren't going to be happier. It's just not going to happen. And we see people at our, our organization and other organizations, it's other firemen are nodding their heads that are listening. People lose their fucking minds when they go for promotion. They lose their fucking minds and they lose the plot when they get it because they have this thing built up. We're back to the hierarchy. Once I achieve this goal and I get this bugle on, I will be happy. You will not. I promise you. And I think that's one of the things I'm most grateful of I am so fucking far from perfect. I'm a clown in so many regards, but I am aware that I have in my life right now everything I need to be happy and content. I have a beautiful wife. I have two beautiful children. I have plenty of money. I like my job. I've got a decent sized cock. I'm good to go. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what are we talking about? Are we talking about six and a half? Six and a half, seven? Can't share. Can't share. You know what's Uh, more important, dude? It's the girth. (laughs) The girth is the... Chode. Is what people don't appreciate. That's what matters. Dude, it it starts to mess with your head, though. And there have even, if I'm being totally honest, there's been points in engaging in even this, this little process in our tiny little department where I'm like, Dan, get back on plot, dude. It's great to work towards things. Yeah, we still met you. Yeah, exactly. Get back on. <laughs> it's great to work towards things, but when you make them bigger than they are, and when you have this this end trophy in mind that you think is going to bring satisfaction, seriously, the, those that's the reason celebrities commit suicide. 
it's like, wait, wait, how, how did that person achieve that much and have that much money and end up killing themselves? It's because they thought that the next phase was going to make them happy and it never did. Be in the moment, be grateful for the phase you're in, soaking in every day, it goes quick and stop thinking that that carrot out in front of you is going to be that delicious. You know what? I read a book a few years ago and I, although I was baptized, I think we've mentioned this maybe on this pod before, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'd say I'm quite spiritual. And this book is called Conversations with God. And it had one little quote that I thought really stood out to me. And it basically just said, the renunciate, and for those who are not familiar, someone who kind of like gives up on things, like the renunciate never denies passion. The renunciate simply denies attachment to results. Passion is the love of doing. Doing is being mm. experienced. Yet what is often created as a part of doing is expectation. To live your life without expectation, without the need for specific results, that is freedom. And so I think mm. that like, that really hit me because I think that when it comes to Bitcoin, and I think Daz and I have spoken about this, I am 100% committed. I am passionate about Bitcoin. This thing is unbelievable. But we talk about, as for what that outcome may be, I don't want to get attached to the results of that outcome. I'm just passionate yes. about the journey at which we're on right now. And I think that's so important. Amen. Yeah. Another, uh, something comes to mind when we talk about this self-actualization stuff as well as stoicism, Marcus Aurelius's book, which is an ancient book, but it's incredibly good. It's called Meditations. If you guys are ever down, anyone listening to this kind of in a rough spot, this is such a, just a great resource for like really good nuggets of wisdom that are timeless. Just makes you realize like, like we've been saying here, everything you need for happiness, you've already got. It's, it's in your own head. External stuff shouldn't be able to affect that if you've got the mental fortitude and understanding of how to accomplish it yourself. It's really all, it's like, it's very monk shit. It's good stuff though. Love it. Love it. Was that, was that topic number one? Yeah, that was topic number one. <laughs> all right, should we do, should we do one more here? Uh, whoever wants it. Other topic here. You boys guy. Josh, hit us with something. All right. I think we should get some get bullish a little bit here. Um, we've been paying a lot of attention to Fred Cougar. We're going to have him on next week. So I've been watching a lot of his tweets and he's got, he focuses quite a bit on the ETFs and what's going on, like how much these guys are hoovering up Bitcoin at this point. According to him and some of his charts, this, these ETFs are hoovering up Bitcoin at a pace that we haven't seen since the GBTC, the ARB trade. Yeah. That's when like tons of people were tossing money into GPTC in order to capture that like 20 to 30% spread. But these things are doing it consistently on a weekly basis with, you know, what, with what looks like isn't going to end anytime soon. There's a ton of, of desire for this thing out there. So what I want to talk about is assuming, and there's a lot of assumptions built in here, the ETF buying stays constant the way it has. The happening is clearly happening April 20th, 420. Coincidentally, and and um, just looking at what's going on right now with the Fed preparing to start cutting rates, Bitcoin's happening, happening. These ETFs that are existing and just hoovering up supply. Where do you guys think this thing goes in the next year? <laughs> I want to get uber bullish here, guys. His chart. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. He predicts Bitcoin ETFs will pass gold ETFs in market cap in 2024. And he shows gold ETFs currently at 93 billion and Bitcoin ETFs already at 37 billion. It feels like this is happening awfully quietly too. Really quietly. 
the mainstream is not paying attention. Google trends for the word Bitcoin are flatlined. Nobody gives a fuck. My phone's not blowing up. At this point in my at least at this point in my life, when Bitcoin starts getting frisky, my phone starts to light up. That's my one of my indicators. No, nobody cares. People are awestruck that it's at nobody cares till it breaks the last all time high. That's yeah. when you start getting those yeah. texts, at least in my experience. Yeah, they're saying retail hasn't even woken up. And that's really where the where the bull market starts is when retail inflows start to start to come in. And I think the if just to circle back on those inflows, uh, it was a, you know deemed to be a bit of a sell the news event when these ETFs launched. But it was only because all of these claims against GBTC were now convertible to Bitcoin, so those outflows were matching the inflows, actually exceeding the inflows, and we saw quite a big dip. And now that that selling down out of GBTC has largely been exhausted, now we're starting to see that inflow start to start to creep up and i think when the retail uh, same same with me like normally phones pinging by now um with with quite a big appreciation in in purchasing power but i do think um i do think all-time high the the next all-time high is really where people start to get frothy about it and your phone will start pinging but retail is not in yet um so i i don't know what to expect out of this i'm trying to remain humble and not set back to that early discussion expectation on outcome here because i think what's really gonna for, for most bitcoiners what we need to think about as well is this could very well be the last cycle of the f- typical four-year cycle i'm a <clears> cycle <throat> maximalist until proven otherwise yeah however you just don't know and i would i would heed caution if you think you can time this thing and, and pick a top and a bottom i'm here to tell you you probably can't and it's probably a silly idea to do so. And I also am here to caution against making big life decisions on a top because we could very well be wrong in that regard as well and it corrects significantly. So when you're bit, you know, your Bitcoin mates are here and they become high net worth individuals in this next cycle because we've been stacking our little asses off in the last couple of cycles, don't jump into making, you know, like you said, walk into the firehouse and you go, Fuck you, I'm not picking up that fat lady. <laughs> piss everyone off because you're now able to retire. Maybe just maybe just roll back on that and just wait until we see how this um, this cycle plays out before you make really drastic life-changing decisions. Yeah. You talked about tops and bottoms. Bitcoin can certainly be a top, but boy, can it also be a power bottom. And, uh, yes, it can. <laughs> you can play all roles, all roles in the bedroom. Bitcoin can, I'll tell you that much. Sorry, go ahead. It can be a dom and it can be a sub. (laughs) I was going to add that one thing that I think is fascinating is that at the moment, I think one of the reasons why we haven't maybe seen the movement in price that people were expecting is that there's a few charts that I've seen and obviously the technicalities of Bitcoin, I should say up front, is not my forte. So this is just my interpretation of things. But we have still a decent chunk of Bitcoin, but it is depleting from exchanges. And I think until we move through that Bitcoin that is held on exchanges, we're going to see limited price movement because then all of a sudden, once that Bitcoin has moved off exchanges and there's no open, readily available supply, all of a sudden that's where price can get squeezed very quickly. And from my understanding of these ETFs, this is where I think it'll be interesting to see how this functions long term. But a lot of these ETFs still operate under the traditional financial system, which is like T plus one or two. So basically, when a transaction goes through, sometimes it will take two or three days to settle. So they're purchasing the Bitcoin post the actual transaction where someone has purchased the ETF, because of that, there can be a discrepancy in the price between the Bitcoin price which the individual has purchased through the ETF and the price at which, say, BlackRock goes and purchases Bitcoin. So all of a sudden, what's interesting is 
If you've got very, yeah, you've got a ton of slippage. And if you've got very limited Bitcoin available, and then all of a sudden, all of these ETFs are trying to accumulate this Bitcoin a day or two post after they're meant to be purchasing this Bitcoin, prices are going to move very quickly. And so this is where I don't know where prices can go. I don't even try to expect to know where prices are going to go. But what I do believe is that you don't want to try and trade Bitcoin because if you miss out on the top five or 10 days of Bitcoin's best performing days, you've just lost a hell of a lot of potential return. Yeah. That point cannot be emphasized enough and needs to, (laughs) if you're somewhat new here, Bitcoin investing seems so simple when you look at previous charts. I mean, that's true of every asset, but it's especially true of Bitcoin. And you just got to stick with it. Time in the market's better than timing the market. And just sit the fuck tight. Because I think it was Clipston who tweeted Bitcoin's biggest price move in the last cycle, whatever percent that was in one day. It was something absurd. And he, he transposed it onto this cycle, what that would look like. You're, you're a loser most of the time until you're a massive winner and you have there's just no way to know when that's going to happen. That message can't be delivered strong enough or often enough. Yeah. Another thing that I was listening to a spaces with Carlos Ari talking about um, these ETF markets having uh, options markets opening in the next few months. What's interesting about that is that in order to have these options markets, they have to accumulate the spot and they're going to have to do it from what he from what i understood what he was saying very quickly like an overnight like we're going to have to buy a shit ton of bitcoin and he's talking about a gamma squeeze potentially happening there but the interesting thing about what could happen in bitcoin versus like gme back in 2021 when all that shit happened they just shut everything down they didn't allow the buying to happen anymore that's not possible with bitcoin so you you mix the fact that they can't shut it down uh, there's a very limited supply. <laughs> it just gets wild to think about where things could go and how quickly. And again, it can whipsaw and surprise the hell out of you on the upside and then surprise the hell out of you on the downside. So don't think just because Bitcoin went to 150 grand that it's going to stay there for any meaningful amount of time. It could be very quick. And um, boomers, boomers want exposure, but they want it in a safe traditional what they feel comfortable with so this is really what i think most of fred krueger's um arguments are around is people are interested in this thing but they're shit scared of you know of taking custody of it and having to manage it the way that you have to via best practice so whether you like etfs or not they're here to stay i believe and most people probably above the age of i don't know let's call it a number 50 will probably opt in to get exposure through that unless they're already here. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. At, at what point do these bears, these habitual bears just start sounding completely retarded? I mean, that that's kind of what I'm wondering. I feel like for <laughs> me it's going back to that that chart by Kruger. It's like when when Bitcoin ETFs pass gold ETFs, when Bitcoin passes gold's market cap, it's like when are your greens and shifts and all these other clowns going to going to turn turn the other direction or disappear or whatever the the bearish case obviously we think we know this is volatile and it can go down a fair amount but the the full-blown this is going to fail type fud nothing zero nothing zero probability as we said earlier but it is starting to sound so intellectually stupid it's almost like an interesting interesting case study in people being wrong and watching them be horribly and publicly wrong 
and seeing what happens in that context. Because right. It's just like human nature. They double down and double yeah. down because it's like every time maybe I'll be right this time and I'll be able to say it's like somebody who's calling the shots every single year for 10 years is going to be right eventually. And then they highlight the fact that they were right, especially a lot of these like uh, traders. Traders love to do this, like make calls, make calls, make calls. Then they erase the tweets after that doesn't work out. And then the one that does work out, they highlight to, you know, all hell. And it looks like they know what they're doing. Like it, it seems like it could be one of those. I think what's challenging yeah. is the fact that so many of these individuals, they're going to continually leverage this stuff. One, because Peter Schiff, I think, benefits from it immensely on his social media platforms and speaks to a certain audience. But on top of that, I don't think Bitcoin is still mainstream enough that when people come and look at the chart of Bitcoin, it does look like, yeah, it's volatile. It went from freaking 69,000 all the way down to 18,000. And so they keep looking at these charts and the charts look very similar every four years. They're not really moving ahead and realizing any new understanding of Bitcoin. I think we keep repeating the cycle until we don't. And it's like, is this until we don't, this cycle? And that's what I'm curious about. Well, and I don't know that the Peter Schiffs and the Mike Greens of the world have the intellectual honesty to admit that they were wrong when they're so dogmatic in their approach to being right against this thing. You know, Quatha Ravens just come out and that's, from my mind, uh, an example of a great, a, a person who's able to exercise intellectual honesty in that regard because he was sceptical. He had a small position. Um, so anyone doesn't know, Quatha Ravens a, a financial podcast and he's, you know, big shift fan. He's also a Larry Lapard fan. And Larry's the one who's eventually got him over the line. But he's been very vocal against Bitcoiners. And I guess it, it comes back to that earlier discussion around our dogmatic approach and our social media approach. That Bitcoiners uh, have fun staying poor and all of, all of that quite inflammatory language surrounding people who don't get it yet or, or yeah. refuse or aren't quite there. Um, so Quoth Raven was very public. Um, Chris Irons is his name. And he was very public in saying, this is fucking ridiculous. You guys sound like lunatics. He's finally got it. He's finally put in a bit of time to understand the elegant his his words, elegance of the network. Um, and it took him some time because he wasn't interested in going that any bit further because all he saw was this barrier, the barriers to his curiosity because of the way that we went about quite cultish behavior. I mean, you're in or you're out. You either get it or you don't. Have fun staying poor. And um, I'm still really starting to resonate with that more and more and more. And you know, I think we've still got a job to do. We've still got a job to do in the education space as people do come in and they still get exposure to the ETFs around the counterparty risk with getting exposure through an ETF. So a lot of these ETFs have other investment vehicles. And if we do experience that in-popping effect of other asset classes, you only own a claim to Bitcoin if you have exposure through an ETF. You don't own any Bitcoin. And this is what the power of Bitcoin is, is removing that counterparty risk so I think us as a community have got to get better at our messaging because that message is still important and we need to get it out. But if we're going about it with that have, have fun staying poor, we're not going to be able to educate these boomers who are getting exposure through the ETFs to become curious enough to be able to say, hey, I need to know a little bit more about how to do this properly. How do I take custody? How do I get the benefits of what Bitcoin really means? The network is where the value is in, in all of our minds. But if I've just got exposure in the via an ETF, I've only got a claim to Bitcoin. I don't understand. And then that counterparty risk that does indeed exist with the exposure to other financial assets is is real. It's low probability, 
you know, BlackRock, we, we, I can't see BlackRock going bankrupt anytime soon, but some of these other ETF vehicles absolutely could. No, and I, th- I think to, to your point, Daz, as well, when it comes to the educational component, I think Bitcoiners, especially toxic Bitcoiners, we're so quick to just ram Bitcoin down someone's throat. And the reality is that people are not going to understand Bitcoin if they don't understand the problem. And so I always find like the best approach to educating for me personally has first understand the pain points at which someone is feeling in society. And if you're able to understand the pain points mm. and then you can define the problem around those pain points, people are like, oh my God, that makes sense. Now I know why it's getting harder and harder to get by. Now I know why like house prices are rising, cost of living is rising. And then from there, you can start to be like, well, what would a solution look like if we were, tried to, if we were to try and fix it? And that's when you can start to lay out Bitcoin. That's mm-hmm. when you can start to dive Love down the rabbit hole. Idea. Yeah, I think that's really important. The tough thing is that for certain demographics and individuals, the pain points are a long ways off. I think about this in our career. Like in our line of work, we're blessed to be at a, a decent paying, solid career fire department. Employees make a good, decent living wage. For a lot of them, they can skate by over levered, not saving any money for a long period of time. There's this safety net, or at least appears to be a safety net of a pension out in the future. And it's hard to rattle their cage and say, Yo, the amount of debt you're racking up and the current state of your cash flow is going to put you in a position 20 years from now where you're going to wish you did X or Y. That's just a hard case to make. And I've been at this case for a long period of time because before Bitcoin, my big, I was super into personal finance and saving and all this stuff. And it's like the people that want to hear it, hear it. And the people that don't want to hear it, never do. And there's not some sexy solution here other than for a big segment of, say, middle and middle upper class, they are not going to have the freedom in the future that they wish. They might look at people like us and say, that must be nice. And it's like, well, it's nice because of decades of habits, right, that I have this freedom. But getting that message across to people in the moment when cheap cheap debt is available and they can just live paycheck to paycheck with a reasonably stable job. It's it's really hard to get this message across. It's kind of astonishing to me how slowly people are to to change their behavior and how how much they don't care about their future self in a way. It's just very foreign to me. But that's kind of been the reality of me proselytizing about financial well-being. Dude, shiny objects are really hard, man. People love them. They do. I was watching, I was, I was scrolling Instagram the other day and there's a video of a dude backing into a spot with a Tesla Cybertruck, gets out with a Vision Pro on and just walks away from the vehicle. Like this guy's driving a $120,000 vehicle with a $3,500 headset on, but not to mention the fact that he's driving around with a fucking VR headset on in his vehicle. It's complete insanity on so many levels, but that that's the consumer culture. Like in like, encapsulated into one video that is yeah. it that is by the numbers like what we're talking about here like I, I don't know what that guy does hopefully he makes a shit ton of money because he better to be playing with all these toys people just don't think about the implications i wrote this blog post years ago i called it the money post it was basically just a journal entry about my thoughts on personal finance and there's this section in there called cars or college and it basically does the math in this section of so many people 
back to our line of work. Oh, I could never afford to send my kids to college. I'm a firefighter. Uh, yeah, you could. You see what's out in the back parking lot that you've been driving for 25 years? Let me do the math on if you got something different than that that was still plenty and we compounded that just with you and the S&P 500 you would have been able to say, say, send little Timmy and Sally to college, right? And people just don't, they don't think that way. And if you frame it that way, it can be helpful. But once again, it's startling. They go, eh, whatever. I still like the Tesla out back, you know? I mean, the Tesla is better than a fucking gender study degree, at least. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. It's definitely, I think there's cheap debt. It pushes everything off into the future so you don't have to think about it. But you freaking bury yourself. Like I, I remember ages ago I went ski touring with a few buddies, and I turn up in my kind of like old beat up Subaru, and I've got like three buddies that have like brand new trucks with sleds on the back. Like we're talking about like the ski do sleds on their own at freaking twenty thousand dollars, and then you've got a freaking sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollar truck. And I'm like, these guys are ski instructors. Like they're earning freaking $35,000 a year. <laughs> How are they affording? And it just blows and it's all financed. It's all financed and you're living that life. And again, to your point, I think when you're able to bring forth future spending to today, you can live a life which makes it feel like the fiat world is freaking incredible. Why would I want to live in any other world? Yeah. And then you hit 45, 50 and your $150,000, $200,000 worth of debt is now burgeoning you. Yeah. Like, that's when you realize. Yeah. And guess what? You you're a 75-year-old Walmart greeter. That is not <laughs> yeah. the way anyone wants to live their life. I, I think it's hard for some people when they don't have examples in their life, too. I'm not going to share too much detail, but I have an example very close to me in my life of somebody that's should be way beyond retirement age that's still working nonstop and looked great for decades, right? Where they lived. The whole image looked fine. Well, things came home to roost and back to having freedom and autonomy and being able to focus on what you really care about. You rob yourself of that if you don't have a crazy massive trust fund or discipline. You need one of the two. You need a huge trust fund or you need discipline. One of the two. Both work. <laughs> I got a pretty funny story from a, uh, July last year. We had a bush bash in, a Bitcoin bush bash in, in Cairns where I live. And I was picking up some Bitcoiners and this old beater of a car that I've got had bubbled tint, like it's old, it's a piece of shit. And I'm like, I would normally be embarrassed to go and pick someone up from the airport to take them somewhere in this car. I would take the wife's car. She's got a much better car to drive around in with the kids, right? But then I sit there and I'm saying, hell, I'm picking up Bitcoiners. This is a badge of honor here. So I went down, picked up and I'm like, <laughs> look at my piece of shit. And they're like, impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's worth throwing in the disclaimer too that Nice shit fucks hard, as we've, we've said before. Like, it's great. Like, stuff's awesome if you can afford it. If you can 100%. afford it. There's nothing wrong with a nice truck. There's nothing wrong with a Tesla. There's nothing wrong with a nice house and be, being generous and all this shit if you can afford it. And most people can't. You know, my wife and I will drive around these subdivisions. How are there this many people that can afford these houses? And I go, 70% of them aren't even close to being able to afford these houses. Scary. Hey, before we stop this thing, I, I mentioned the Cybertruck. I want to hear your honest thoughts on what you guys think of this thing. I would never fucking own one in my life. It's the goddamn ugliest thing in the whole entire world. Yep. Okay. Dan? Uh, I'm not as bearish on it. I have a feeling that in person, this thing's going to take your breath away. So I'm going to go, I'm going to swim upstream here. 
I'm waiting to pass total judgment on it until I actually see one, which I haven't. I've watched a, po- a couple of videos of reviews. The panel gaps look like dog shit. Like the thing, it, I, have you guys heard that the like stainless steel panels are rusting on them now? Like people no, are I getting haven't. them in the rain and like there's rust forming on the stainless steel. Holy like they've shit. got some apparently some serious fucking problems, but uh, I don't know. I could see it going either way, but it looks like form following function too much. Like Elon had a piece of fucking paper and scribbled a piece, a polygon onto it and was like, make this a truck. And the engineers were like, what well, we can't. And there he's like, fucking do it. I don't give a shit. And uh, I think I think he put these engineers through some real shit, man. Poor bastards that work for Tesla. You've got to be, you know, Dan, I can't see you ever because you've just told us about the size of your appendage. So I can't ever see you owning one, but I I, I do <laughs> see it being a major compensation for something lacking in that area if you're going out and buying one of these things. Could be. 100%. We'll see a cyber truck in the, one of the back parking lots of our fire stations, <laughs> Josh. I we guarantee might. you that we someone's going to get one. I yeah. can't wait to try to kick the side of it hard enough to dent it. That's the coolest thing about it, in my opinion. Like the fact that you can drive it to Walmart, park it in the front spot, and a cart can't fuck it up. That's a pretty big deal. That's a that's a huge bonus. I just love you. You probably saw, and I'm sure it was uh, like planned. You probably saw their initial release years ago, and he's just like, and it comes with bulletproof glass. Throws like a ball (laughs) straight through the window. (laughs) (laughs) The window breaks immediately. He's like bulletproof glass. Check it out. I'll throw this little uh, metal ball at it, and it breaks immediately. He's like, oh, (laughs) so uh, good. That wasn't supposed to happen. Joe Rogan shot an arrow at the side of yeah, one I when Musk that. brought it over, like full blown compound bow with a blunt tipped end, and it just put a little nick, little scratch on the on the finish. Didn't even dent it. But who needs this? Pretty incredible. Who ne- yeah. who needs I, this? I don't know. Nobody. Firefighters that want to overconsume, Seb. We'll, we'll report back. First cyber truck in the back parking lot. We, we won't say names, but we'll uh, we'll let you guys know. Yeah, we'll put it on Twitter. Yeah, but to be, you know what? When I had my car stolen from the car park, of course I was like, oh, my car's been stolen. If I had a Cybertruck, I'd be pissed off. So I'm happy that my car... <laughs> yeah. Different world. I'm doing well with my 2010 Chevy Malibu and a Hyundai Santa Fe. But, you know, back to cool stuff. One day, if, if and when, Josh, I show up in the back parking lot with something nice, I hope I can say with certainty I'm going to be able to afford it. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll buy you... I'll buy a new set of skis and then you guys can come up to Whistler and uh, it looks like you're wearing a Steamboat Springs uh, t-shirt am, as well, yeah, Josh. We were so. just in Steamboat. Do we have to get to Whistler? I, I'm going to push hard for our ski trip to be Whistler next year. 100%. And I think we should do that. Yeah, you guys should come up. Be amazing. And I think I think Daz better come as a pseudo honorary firefighter. Yeah. Hell yeah. I don't, I can't, we can't guarantee first class tickets, but we can get you in coach and Spirit Airlines. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I'll see you in six months. <laughs> <laughs> We love uh, you guys. Uh, these are fun same. as hell. We're going to do another one. We only did two topics, so we've got endless amounts to come, folks. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining us, guys. Get up, boys. Thanks a lot, guys. That was rad. That's a wrap for this week, ladies and gents. God bless America Do we enjoy talking to Daz and Seb. Both are thoughtful, articulate, and intelligent as hell. I'm sure you agree. Don't you worry. They will both be on again. If you are smelling what we're stepping in here at the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, You can do us a real-life solid by taking one minute to leave us a review on Apple and or like and subscribe or leave us a review on your app of choice. We're also on YouTube if you ever want to see our mediocre-looking faces. Until next week, I encourage you to intentionally take time to enjoy life's journey, regardless of the destination, and to be thankful for your genitalia.